it's important as we go through this today, just like we did last time, and we're going to try and keep these about, you know, um, it seems like we've done about once a year or so, just to give us an update and a reminder, and we'll kind of change around what we're focusing on. There'll be three new places we're talking about today. But it's important for us to know that, yes, of course, just like the Word told us, <laughs> we see that the, the prophecy is fulfilled, that the church continues to endure hardship in different ways and in different places. But that doesn't mean that the church is a, a victim of these things, because, of course, the Lord promised us that we're going to have victory in these things, and that His gospel and the kingdom is going to continue to move forward. So we want to keep that in mind. Um, you know, I... Persecution is one of those things where it's pretty easy to teach a sermon that'll make you feel guilty. It wouldn't be hard for me to stand up here and say, don't you just feel awful that you get to go home to a nice house when there's some believers, brothers and sisters, that don't have those things, and that would be very easy to do. I don't know that that's the heart that the Lord wants us to have about it, though, because that's not necessarily the heart that we see in the New Testament. It's just we need to be aware of the suffering of our brothers and sisters throughout the world so we can act on it. The primary way we act on it is prayer. We're going to pray through these things tonight and just bring these things before the Lord and remember them the way that God asked us to, but also so that we can prepare our hearts and minds for the things that we're going to encounter in our own life, the, the persecution and the resistance from the enemy that we will encounter as well. So those are kind of the two things we want to keep in mind. Not a time to feel guilty, not a time to be afraid, but just to be aware of these things. So, um, just like we talked about last time, I'll just say up front, I, I would worked very hard to make sure that the facts and the figures parts of this are as accurate as I'm aware I can make them. This is by definition a very difficult thing to get facts and figures for um, because we're talking about persecution of people that's religiously motivated. So there's nobody making a little list of, yes, we did another persecution today. Um, it's, it's very sketchy. A lot of these things are ignored or go unreported, unfortunately. And then on the other side of it, sometimes the numbers are inflated by people who just for sensational purposes or because that prints better. And I'm trying to avoid both of those. But so in all things, we have to just be aware this is generally what's going on. Um, but I did the best to make sure I was not pulling information from sources that were a little sketchy. Um, I have read and heard that Open Doors especially, they work very hard to stay conservative and to make sure that they're, if anything, they're erring on the side of, no, what do we absolutely for sure know? And if we don't know for sure, we're just going to not talk about it. So that's a source that I found quite helpful. Um, and according to Open Doors, um, the most up-to-date kind of statistics we have over the last year or so, every day about 13 Christians were killed worldwide because of their faith. Every day, uh, 12 churches or Christian buildings were attacked in some way. Um, and every day, about 12 Christians were unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and five were abducted. Um, that brought us to a total in uh, the, the, the past year of 4,761 Christians martyred. Um, and again, that's a conservative. That's something that they can actually attribute. It's quite possible that there were more, but they're trying to be as clear and conservative as they uh, can. Um, the, the previous year had been 2,983 believers martyred. So there was a significant increase over 2020 and early 2021. Um, there's some reasons for that. Number one was that of the 4,761 Christians who were martyred over the past year, 3,530 were Nigerian believers. Um, so that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. That's a primary area where um, some very, very serious persecution is going on. Globally, about one in eight Christians live in a country where the faith is actively being persecuted. Uh, and an estimated 75% of religiously motivated violence and oppression targets Christians. Let me say that last part again. Of all the religiously motivated discriminatory practices or violence or anything that's going on, 75% of it is directed towards believers. That's kind of interesting. 
That's something that doesn't surprise us, right, spiritually, but it's something to keep in mind that, of course, human beings are awful, they do awful things, but for some reason, Christians tend to become the majority target of that. I wonder why that would be. Um, Every country's situation with these things is different, and so, like last time, I've chosen a couple of countries that specifically Tyler asked us to look at um, this year because there's unique things going on or things that we really need to be aware of and pray over. So the first one that we're going to talk about together is going to be the country of Nigeria. Open Doors puts together a watch list. It's very, very helpful. It just gives you some super general things um, every year. And they do a bit of a ranking of where the most serious things are going on, and they update it yearly. Uh, this 2021 watch list, which is looking, the 2021 list is looking back at what's happened over the last year and kind of looking forward as well, put Nigeria at number nine in the world in terms of serious persecution. Um, that's an increase for Nigeria from where they had been. In 2015, Nigeria had the sixth largest Christian population in the world. Um, that's like a Wikipedia statistic. What does that mean? That's going to include everybody, nominal people, you know, nominal denominations, Catholics, Christians, evangelicals, everybody. But it, it has a very, very large Christian population, and that's since grown from 2015. They believe that Nigeria will be one of those places that will be like, have one of the largest Christian populations in the world going forward and continuing to grow. So a, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be coming from Nigeria in the future. That um, Nigeria is also the primary reason why martyrdom grew 60% in the last year. More Christians are martyred for their faith in Nigeria than in any other country at this time, according to Open Doors. Um, this happened despite attempts by the Nigerian government to do pandemic lockdowns, because as, as the corona came through, they tried to lock down and do the things they were supposed to do, and yet there was still enough ability for people to do this stuff that there was significant problems. Uh, Nigeria is a democratic-type government, which is another anomaly. Usually the, the countries that you find on the top of Open Doors watch list, you're going to find North Korea up there, you're going to find Saudi Arabia, countries that are a, a top-down you know, dictatorship and they're able to enact these kinds of things on their population. Nigeria is a democratically elected government, but it's regionally divided. It has a very, very Muslim north of the country and a very, very Christian south of the country. And at this point, the government, uh, whose current president happens to be Muslim, is has kind of been turning a blind eye to actions of kind of non-state actors. So you've got terrorist groups in the north who are doing all the things that they do in the north, acting as a kind of a little state within a state, and they're beginning to make incursions farther and farther south through the center of the country and now even into the Christian south and carrying out these religiously motivated I mean, raids, essentially, is what we're talking about here. Um, you've probably heard of Boko Haram, which is one of these groups. They became prominent in 2014. Um, there's also uh, a terrorist group known as, and I want to get the name here uh, correct, Fulani, which is a jihad, another jihadi group. Um, and essentially their goal is we want to have a caliphate, we want to have a Muslim Sharia state, and we're going to persecute and attack anybody who we feel is going to stand in the way of that. Um, the government has completely turned a blind eye to this and even have made public statements indicating that Christians are part of the problem and that they're making the violence a political issue and everybody just needs to calm down. It's not that big of a deal. Um, which is 100% not the case. Nigeria has, so is joining the U.S. State Department's uh, Countries of Particular Concern list, which is a very small list. and includes Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. And those are all names that we tend to think of when we think of incredibly repressive, difficult countries. Uh, and Nigeria is now on that list, according to the State Department. Um, that list is essentially designed to name governments where the State Department thinks uh, the government has engaged in or tolerated systemic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom. 
So at this point, even the government is kind of making statements um, that, hey, we, we're aware of what's going on. And again, so we're, this is primarily coming from jihadi militias, essentially. Uh, Boko Haram, you probably remember, they kidnapped a large group of schoolgirls school in 2014 and held them for some time. Um, most of those girls were returned. One of them, named Leah Sharibu, um, was never released, and she's thought to still live in, essentially, enslavement and a forced marriage um, to, with the Boko Haram group because she refused to renounce her Christian faith. Um, so there's still something that is, you know, going, yeah, it's, and it's one of those things you'll see very frequently. This stuff will blow in and out of the news cycle, but unfortunately the, nothing really changes and it continues to go on. Um, there's a group called the International Committee on Nigeria, uh, which believes that Boko Haram was responsible for nearly 35,000 deaths between 2015 and 2020. And Fulani uh, jihadi groups reportedly murdered between uh, around 17,000 people between 2010 and 2020. So over the next decade or half decade, that's tens of thousands of people um, who've been killed. And of those, probably the majority, majority are gonna be specifically targeted because they're believers. Um, it's not all, they're, the, they're targeting a bunch of people in different places, but that's a significant portion. The persecution in Nigeria is now being called a genocide by a number of qualified watchdog organizations. Um, and it's now believed, again, how can you really know this, but it's believed that there may be more people being killed in Nigeria than in the terror killings that we saw of Christians in the Middle East in recent years. When IS and uh, the caliphate-type state people came through, there was serious stuff that went on in Iraq and everything, which was awful. We now think that Nigeria may be getting worse than that. Um, this is happening as of you know, this latest event that I was able to track was uh, July 16th of this year, so just a couple days ago, according to International Christian Concern, uh, attackers who were thought to be Fulani militants attacked and destroyed 45 plots of land in the Miango district uh, in the plateau state of Nigeria. It was farmland belonging to 25 Christian families. It was destroyed sometime, you know, midnight or early morning. Um, and this is a, a, a typical thing that happened even if they don't actually outright kill somebody. What they're trying to do is displace Christians from the center and south of the region just push them further and further south so they'll destroy their crops these were you know crops that were right about to be harvested so these are families that now have no you know that's how you work as a farmer you don't have any future hope of income or livelihood for the next significant period of time and so those people then get displaced from their land they'll have to move south and the jihadis will kind of move down and claim that area of, of land so we're, we really need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in nigeria this is something significant and something that because of the setup of the government it's difficult to even think of how a democratic government would come in and say, well, you need to stop this because it's not like there's a dictator where everybody says, oh, it's that guy, it's his fault. It's just something that's being kind of ignored by a, a country that would be thought to be an ally and a fine country. So um, there's a real need. It seems like there's a kind of, and you'll see this kind of as a trend we are talking about this year. There's just a real um, apathy towards this stuff right now in Nigeria where it's just, yeah, it's something that's happening. What are you gonna do? People fight. Um, and so be, be in prayer for uh, brothers and sisters. Um, there's hope that they're, you know, make, as they make it more aware, hey, this is what's going on, that, that there may be some change there. But we know that the, the, our primary hope for them is that they would be strong in the Lord and that the Lord would be standing by them. And we're not hoping anybody else to do that for them. So continue to pray for them. Let's move to uh, Mexico. Nigeria is one of those where I think we're, um, unfortunately, and this is, uh, this is a hard thing that happens, you expect persecution in certain areas of the world, right? When it's connected to Islamic persecution or things like that, you say, all oh, right, we know that happens, and we almost get hardened to it. 
which is really difficult and we need to watch out for that because these things are not normal and they happen, I think, they, they flare up and then they go away and, and we're so used to the news cycle that we kind of say, you're right, that's right, of course, that's happening. Um, but it really impacts individual families. But some of the other countries we're going to talk about today are places where I think sometimes we're less aware or we expect less persecution to happen. And I, I'm not a prophet or a tracker of these things, but it seems to me that we need to get used to this happening a little bit more. I don't believe that we're going to see in the future that persecution is going to be contained to certain parts of the world where we can just wave our hands and say, oh, that's right, you know, Muslims persecute people or that happens in that country. Um, we're going to begin to see this kind of low-level thing spread much more widely, and we should be aware of that and uh, prepared for that. So some of the things going on in Mexico, um, unlike in Nigeria. So in Nigeria, you have a strong historic Christian population that's, a, a, if not the majority, very close. They think about 46% or so, maybe a little more, of the population in Nigeria are Christian, have been for a long time, which is one of the reasons why the persecution that's so systematic was so surprising to people. Mexico is very different. Um, evangelical believers are a very, very small minority in Mexico. Mexico is predominantly and historically Catholic, and we're going to talk about how that creates some really interesting problems from a majority of uh, angles. Um, one of the main ways that there's been consistent persecution in Mexico is because of the complete endemic uh, drug cartel control. So because of how corrupt the, the, the government and, and everything is with cartels, the cartels essentially need to keep a total level of fear and control over their territory. And they see churches, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, as a threat to that. Well, why? Well, because that church is a community leader and they're blessing and encouraging the community. They're not just, you know, they're teaching the gospel, they're bringing people things that they need and people are looking to the church for leadership. That's a serious problem for the cartel because they know that pastors are going to teach, hey, we shouldn't be you know, using drugs. We shouldn't be committing all these you know, sins that the cartel is basically trafficking in. And that's a problem. If, if your stock and trade is, is using sinful behavior to corrupt people and get them under your thumb, uh, you can't have that happening. So very frequently, that's one of the ways that churches are directly persecuted um, in Mexico is a cartel leader will draw the, you know, kind of a circle around this church and say, this guy needs to go because he's causing us a problem in our, in our backyard. Um, and that can lead to direct targeting of priests and uh, pastors. And there, there have been kidnappings and direct murder and things like that going on. Um, they say now that Latin America, and I think specifically Mexico, but certainly Latin America is the most dangerous place for you to be assigned as a Catholic priest in the world because of this. But we're also starting to see some different things happen, and this will be very similar to what we talk about with France. Um, there's growing incidences of just vandalism and aggression against churches coming from Mexican society. So Mexican society has historically been generally Catholic. It's just an accepted thing. We are, this is who we are, whether or not you take it seriously or not. Well, yeah, of course, we all go, we're church people, we're Catholic, this is what we do. That's not really the case anymore, as a significant portion of Mexican society is turning away from that, becoming much more secular, and they're becoming to be, they're becoming much more and more angry against perceived problems in the church and real problems in the church. Um, let's not kid ourselves, the, the church sometimes in that area of the world has not always been a, a, a force of the gospel or gospel love. And so some of that is people reacting to that, but some of it is people just reacting against any 
authority that's attempting to tell them you can or cannot do something. And the reaction against that has been very strong. There's a weekly average of 27. Again, these are going to be primarily Catholic churches affected by vandalism throughout the past year. Some of these uh, incidences are groups seeking the legalization of abortion, which the Catholic Church opposes. So knowing that the Catholic Church is going to be a cultural you know, for saying, no, this is not something that we should allow. There is groups that are coming against the church and saying, well, if you're going to oppose that, then we're going to directly, you know, initiate action and attack you and, and publicly try and make a case that you're a problem. Um, according to the media on March 9th, there was a demonstration uh, for International Women's Day, of all things, um, and that was vandalizing church buildings and public structures, a small group of protesters advocating for abortion rights through paint and flammable liquids at the Mexico City Cathedral. This is according to the U.S. State Department. And this is a tracked thing now that the State Department's aware of is that there's just groups in the society that are kind of trying to directly attack the, the Catholic Church specifically because they feel like it's standing in the way of the progress that they want to see in the society. Um, so that's kind of one thing that's happening, right? And that's, you know, we need to be aware, while we are not Catholic, and we'll bring this up in, in the French section as well, while we are not Catholic, we do have brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, and if one of us suffers, we all suffer, right? I, there are many, many things that I feel like <laughs> me and, and Catholic brothers and sisters should talk about, and we should get, you know, get right, and, and things like that, but when we see any part of the church being attacked, that's not a good thing to see. Even if there are errors and issues in that church, we don't want to see whole sections of the society saying, you know what, you represent Christ to us and therefore we, we're going to attack you. That's a serious thing. But we should also realize that because of how complex the problem is, this, so that's one thing that's happening, that the Catholic Church is being directly attacked. Another unfortunate thing that's happening is the Protestant Church is suffering underneath, not always directly from the Catholic Church, but underneath Catholic people in far-flung areas who are seeing them as a problem because they're minority churches. So that's the next thing we want to talk about. Um, Christians in areas where there's a strong local, uh, either Catholic belief, which is most places. If you go to most rural areas, that is, there's a strong indigenous strain of Catholicism mixed with local pagan practices. So it's a syncretistic type thing. Yes, we're Catholic. We also have these holdovers from our ancestral worship that we do, and it kind of all gets blended together. That is a very cultural thing in Mexico, and there's a very majority view of it. This is what we all do. And so we've all chosen to be this, therefore everybody here needs to be that. There's not this sense that, you know, we're very American. We think, oh, well, you go do that, we do this, it's fine. That's not the view of the culture a lot of times uh, in Mexico. And so if there are evangelicals in a town, they're always going to be the minority, and they are now increasingly coming into persecution because they are a minority church. Um, This is something that seemed to worsen across the board during 2020 because as kind of things had to shut down and the, the, the federal government in Mexico had to kind of pull themselves back and say, well, we, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Local governments and local cartel control in an area became much, much stronger because now they were the only game in town. They, nobody was even paying attention to them and they began to just do whatever it was that they would have done only more so. So what we tend to see is that the majority Belief will take evangelicals and they'll begin to either try and force them to um, renounce their, their belief, say, no, you need to be Catholic, you need to stop doing this. Then if they won't do that, there'll be a direct action of, you know, a lot of times over the last couple of years, they'll, they'll cut off their electricity, they'll cut off their water, they'll force them to stop holding Sunday services, they'll force them to contribute to religious festivals or religious services that are going on that the, the Catholic Church as a whole is doing. Well, you have to still contribute for this, you have to still participate in this, or we're going to cause a problem. And this is actually 
continued to escalate to where we've seen detentions, illegal fines, uh, denial of access to burial space, which is a big deal for them culturally, right? If you have somebody who passes away and you want to bury them in the town cemetery, well, that's fine if you're Catholic, but if you're Protestant, you're not allowed to bury them. Um, so just really awful things going on. And then when these things get brought up, local officials will argue that, well, it's, the, it's just the Protestants causing trouble. Like, yeah, that's what they do. They make a big mess. It's not a big deal. And some mediator will be brought in unofficially and he'll say, yeah, you guys need to stop making, making trouble. Just leave it alone. You're, you're, you're causing issues. Remember what that, causing issues. This is a, we'll, we'll talk about how this is a historic <laughs> problem for the, the Christian church. But um, because the Catholic Church in Mexico has been seen, and this is a quote from Open Doors, as a historically powerful and politically conservative institution, the church has had a monopoly over religious practice. And remember that as a, that's another thing I want us to remember as we continue talking, a politically conservative, powerful institution, meaning everybody is, in, and I'm not talking about conservative necessarily like we think of conservative in America. I mean, conservative like historic and traditional, and this is what we all do. Think of it that way. And, and people are very not happy with anybody coming in and they're, they're seen as being innovative and you're doing different things and we don't like that. And therefore there's serious resistance. Um, in 2020, there were two reported killings of evangelical Protestant pastors, and there was continued attacks and abductions of priests and pastors that we've seen for a long time. That's according to the U.S. State Department. Again, the State Department, you can read a whole report that they did in the last year saying, hey, we're aware of this. This is a very serious issue. You can't allow a religious minority in your country to just be having this happen to them. You need to take some action. And so there's some pressure that's now coming onto the Mexico federal government to actually step in, where historically they've just been completely hands off and said there's a, there's a kind of a tradition in Mexico of, hey, every state and local government just does their own thing. We don't get involved. And that's really causing continued suffering. Um, it's, it, one of the stories that I read was a local pastor whose his home his, and his church had been burned. All of their possessions had either been stolen or burned, and they'd been then forced to relocate, which is a really, the relocation is another common part of this is if they, if something happens and the local believers say, well, this isn't fair, this isn't right, somebody will step, a mediator of some kind will come from outside and they'll say, okay, yeah, it's a real big deal. What we're going to do is we're just going to make you move and that'll solve the problem. So people are just completely losing their homes because, well, this is a big issue. We don't know what to do. And so we'll just take you away and they'll get moved somewhere else. Um, and so he was relocated as part of that. Uh, he was stated that people are coming to the Lord to meet their spiritual needs that are not satisfied in traditional religion. Right? Which, and he said that's happening despite the persecution. Right? This is what's going on. This is what the enemy's trying to do. But people are just getting saved because they want to know Jesus. Right? And again, I, I, I state that very carefully because I... This is all mixed up and muddied. As you read, you'll find stories of good, believing, you know, Catholic priests who are getting martyred for their faith because they're trying to love the Lord and withstand these awful things that are going on. And then you'll find stories of, in another place, parts of the Catholic Church that are persecuting Protestants. So unfortunately, it's, I would love to draw a street, neat line and say, this is how it is. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing that's going on, and we need to pray for all of our believing brothers and sisters, wherever they're found there, that they would be able to stand for the Lord and not, I think, sometimes see... Their, the institution is the thing that they're supporting. Because right now, it doesn't really matter what institution they're part of. The enemy is trying to make sure that they're having serious resistance come up against them. Um, but like everything, and we, I've read this several times, when you find persecution like this, it seems like it clarifies things for people. They recognize what is actually going on, who, who the enemy is supporting, and who the Lord is supporting. And it seems like the church continues to grow despite what the enemy 
wants to do, which I always find so encouraging, right? If it was if it was one of those stories where, yeah, and then right after that there was persecution and you just didn't have a Christian church there anymore. But I don't read a lot of those in history. You read a lot of, there was persecution and it seemed like now there's just more Christians there, which is, praise the Lord for that, right? But definitely a place where the church is in need of prayer. Um, and hopefully, I pray, a place where you'll begin to see, and you do see this already in Mexico, when the church moves into these places where there's been historically all this corruption and the cartel control and stuff, and Jesus starts to set people free, you really can't stop that. You can persecute that if you want, right? But if you got saved out of a cartel, and I know believers who had similar, maybe not quite to that level, but similar testimonies, if you get saved out of that kind of lifestyle, I'm sorry, you can do whatever you want. Like, I've been scared before. Like, I'm not scared of you, you know? And that's what we need to be praying for to would continue to go on in Mexico, that people would get radically saved um, and that the enemy wouldn't be able to stop that. Let's turn to France. We have some time left, and then we're going to wrap up with some encouragement for us and some ideas for prayer. France is one that I kind of, Tyler said, hey, I want you to really research France. And I said, France, all right, whatever. But like I wasn't on the top. You know, if I had made a list of the 10 places that we should be praying for, I definitely wouldn't have put France up there. Um, but I, it just was mostly that I was not aware of the things that are going on right now um, in the country. France has a rapidly growing evangelical church. I didn't know this. Um, but right now they believe that the evangelical church is approximately 1 million strong in France, and that's growth that has basically happened since 1950. Um, been a huge growth, and it's continued to grow to the point that people are beginning to notice in the society and saying, wow, this is new. We haven't seen this. Again, France, very similar to Mexico, historically quite Catholic, um, which is just neither here nor there. It's, it's true. There's been some believers and people the Lord have used and some awful things that have happened from that. It just is what it is. Um, but to see a growing evangelical presence is new for them. They also have a Muslim population at this point of 3 to 5 million people, which, again, not a thing that I was quite aware of. Um, but although you know, right, we know increasingly that we're seeing people move, as you see, both religious persecution. We have Christian brothers and sisters who are fleeing the Middle East, and France is one of their destinations very typically. I know of a family who that's where they had to relocate. So that's a common thing that happens. We also have Muslim people who are leaving because it's, they just don't want to be in this environment anymore, and they try and find a place in Europe to be. So this is a pretty common move that's happening. But what's happening in France is because, of Fran because France is so used to having a Christian or a Catholic monoculture, right? They're used to, well, this is what we are. We're French, and therefore we're Catholic. Their society doesn't really know how to deal with the fact that there's multiple different religions now that have serious representation in their, in their country and in their culture. And it's causing a lot of tension. They're seeing a rise in Muslim extremism. Um, and the way that the government is beginning to deal with it is actually now exposing Christians to religious persecution. So how is that working? Well, there's been increasing numbers of attacks, similar to what we see in Mexico, there's been increasing number of attacks directly on the church. And a lot of this, because the Catholic church is the visible, right? If, if you're in France and you think of churches, what do you look at? Well, here's a cathedral over here, it's a church, right? And yes, especially historically, that was, you know, that was where the Lord was worshiped in this whole town, was this place, right? So when people who do not like that um, wanna find a focal point, for their anger or whatever. The Catholic Church is typically the first place that they think of. In the first 11 days of February 2019, there were 10 recorded attacks on churches in France, according to International Christian Concern. Um, there was a large, serious attack in October 2020. Three people were killed uh, at, while they were praying at the cathedral in Nice. Um, the French police recorded 129 thefts and 877 acts of vandalism at Catholic sites, mostly churches and cemeteries, in 2018. 
attacks like that quadrupled between 2008 and 2019. And there are two kinds of things that you see there. Some of them are, are Muslim extremist terrorism, right? Similar to that attack at Nice, I believe, um, I will need to check that, but I believe it was a Muslim extremist motivated killing a Muslim who was saying, I, I do not like Christians and here are Christians praying. So we, I mean, that's literally the definition of a martyrdom. We have three brothers and sisters trying to serve and worship the Lord and were killed for that, for being believers. But we also see this interesting, just kind of anarchic vandalism, just angry secular people or, or people who not necessarily religiously affiliated, just finding the church to be something that they do not like and they want to make that clear. So there's vandalism and defacement and desecration of these sites because they say, well, this is a sacred place. I don't believe in anything sacred. So here's what I'm going to go ahead and do. And so you see both of those kind of strains of things happening. 2019 was an all-time high for attacks like that. Um, they occurred at a rate of three a day, this kind of vandalism. And in the last six years, France has suffered 25 deadly jihadist attacks that have killed 263 people. That's according to Christianity Today. So there's been this serious problem that they begin to have as a society. What are we going to do? We don't know how to handle this problem of religious extremism, which is essentially what's happening in their, in their society. And I'm not. this is not a political point. I'm just stating what's going on, is that there's a large number of Muslim people, many of whom get radicalized in France because they'll bring in external teaching from the Middle East that'll say, hey, you need to do this and that, and they'll become radicalized, and they'll go out and do these, these things. And again, this is a thing we also need to pray for. These are deceived people, because typically what happens is it's young, marginalized Muslim men, a lot of times, who feel like they have no other ch chance in the world, and then someone tells them, oh, you're very important. Here's the thing. You, here's a crusade for you. Here's what you need to do. And it's a sick, sick thing that happens to them, and they end up losing their lives for a lie of the enemy, which is awful. We should be praying for them that the Lord would step in, and he has, and you see a lot of these amazing salvations that are happening in the Muslim population in Europe and in the Middle East. So definitely work that the Lord is doing there. But because of this problem of Muslim extremism, the French government in February of this year began to debate a set of laws that would attempt to take drastic control of religious organizations. And this is across the board. They said, well, w this is a problem. We don't know as a society how to deal with religious pluralism. So we as the government need to step in and make sure that we know what's going on. So some of the rules that would happen, and again, these are going to be across the board, whether you're a mosque or a church or whatever you are, they would force religious organizations to re-register with the government every five years. There was an attempted ban on homeschooling for religious reasons. This is a common thing that happens in the, in the Muslim culture is they'll pull their kids out of the French public school and then the fear that the French government has is, well, we don't know what they're getting taught and maybe they're getting radicalized. So they're trying to ban that and say, no, you can't homeschool your kids for religious reasons. They have to be in our French public school so they can be French is the, is the hope. Only allowing locally educated religious leaders. Again, we're afraid that there's going to be imported extremism. So you, it has to be somebody who's from here. And submitting religious organizations' budgets to state monitoring, monitoring and only allowing certain limits on foreign contributions. And by limits, I mean a very low limit. Now, you hear all these things from one perspective, and you say, oh, right, that makes sense. You're trying to clamp down on Muslim religious extremism. Uh, the problem is that they're applying this across the board. And all of these things, as you start to think about what if you were a small French congregation, very often as an evangelical, you're getting support from outside because that's needed sometimes for missionaries, right? You send a missionary in, let's say, to France. He's externally educated. He's receiving contributions from back home that are keeping the church afloat. Uh, his children may be homeschooled because he may for, you know, not want to put his children in a French public school. And all of these things now will become illegal because, well, that's, we're really worried about religious extremism, so we're going to keep an eye on you. And uh, 
This bill would then prevent non-French citizens from taking control of any religious association and would require a contract of Republican commitment. That's a quote. Ensuring its members honor French values. The word Republican in France, don't think Republican like GOP here. Republican means pertaining to the French Republic. So that's a, a French patriotic statement of this is who we are and you need to honor these values and you need to sign this contract committing to that. Unless we think that this is just an oversight of evangelicals, how oh, they got caught up in the kerfuffle and nobody realized what was going on. Their interior minister stated, evangelicals, I'm quoting, are a very important problem. Obviously not a problem of the same nature as Islamism, which makes terrorist attacks and deaths. He later stated, we cannot discuss with people who refuse to write on paper that the law of the Republic is superior to the law of God. So, these things are not accidents that happen, right? And I'm not directly attacking that gentleman. I don't know always if people realize what it is that they're doing when the enemy's at work and afoot, right? I think sometimes the enemy is just working. But I want us to remember this because this is something similar to what happens in Mexico, and I personally believe that this is a new thing we have to be aware of as believers, that um, when, we get, when the culture war goes on, the church always loses because we're not of this world and we're not serving any of the masters that are out there, right? And the world is not okay with that. At some point, you're gonna be demanded that you serve a master, and when you refuse to serve any of the masters that you're allowed to select, there will be persecution for that, make no mistake. There has to be, because we're not going to be allowed to just continue to serve the Lord in quiet sometimes. I think there are people that find that threatening. And that's literally what you're seeing in France, is all the churches are asking for, and they're stating this back to the government and making public statements and kind of talking to the West and saying, hey guys, do you, do you know what's going on? But the statement is only, hey, we, we are good French citizens. We want to be here. We love being in France, but we also serve Jesus, and that's, that's our thing. Like, you need to know that that's our primary thing, and that's going to make us better French citizens and better lovers of the people around us, but you have to be okay with the fact that that's our primary allegiance. And um, that is not something that the world is okay with. This is from a local pastor, which I love. There's a sense of humor to this that I like. He says, we pray a lot in France for the persecuted church. But when a little problem hits us in France, we wail over our great pain. But maybe now it's our turn to go through difficulties and to persevere. It is normal to disagree with the state. But let us be Christians who, first of all, are proud of our Lord. I love that. He says it's normal to disagree with the state. I would like to say that is a historically accurate Christian statement. It is normal for us as Christians to be thought of as problems and outsiders within the state. Whether that's a direct thing like you see in Nigeria, right? Such a problem that there's a part of the country that's just willing to, you know, do military raids against these defenseless people. That's a thing that has happening in history in Christianity and will continue to happen, unfortunately. But there's also this second thing that we begin to see, which is the small scale persecution. And I, I want us to remember that these are both historically things that we've seen as a church. Neither of these are new. The, the, the direct killing and the crazy things that go on, that's normal and we've seen that in the past. It flares up from time to time. But this consistent low level thing where when you are, exist within a place and you're choosing to serve the Lord above all, the enemy is not going to be okay with that long term. He'll let you go for a while, but at some point he's going to keep coming back to you and saying, no, we need to check on this. And he's going to push people to do that because it's by choosing to serve the Lord before all else, you're directly taking a stand against the enemy. You're saying, no, I'm not going to choose this master. And the Bible has told us, Jesus said, hey, you can't serve two masters. It's just not how it's going to work. You're going to have to pick one. And the world is very interested that we pick a master and they're very interested in who that's going to be. The general director of France's National Council of Evangelicals um, said, should we be afraid? No. He said, in Jeremiah, it said that we must look for the good of the city where we are. And he said, in this town isn't Jerusalem, it's Babylon. 
I think a lot of Christians would prefer that we were in Jerusalem instead of Babylon. Many evangelicals would like to still be in a Christian society that protects us. I would, I would be one of those, right? I would, that would be excellent. I would love to always continue to exist in that wonderful place where there have been cultures like that in the past, right? This isn't a new thing. This is, there were cultures like that. England used to be a place like that. You could be a Christian in England and you were part of the whole thrust of the society, which was basically more or less towards let's carry forth the gospel and let's build up God's church, right? And not everybody in England was saved at any time historically and awful things still happen, but that was what was kind of the general tone of their society, right? That's no longer the case, right? France, in some way, used to be like that. It was, and of course, there's awful things that happened, right? But that was the generally accepted thing. It was like, yeah, this is, this is who we should generally be. And then there was some, a remnant of God's church in there saying, yes, and we take it seriously, and we're really going to do that, right? And that's no longer the case. And that's the thing that the French are beginning to unfortunately realize. The evangelical church is saying, well, well it seems like that's not where we are right now. And he said, but it's, he said, since we're no longer in a Christian society, He said, French evangelicals, and I'm quoting now from an article written on him, French evangelicals have to be witnesses to the gospel like the first Christians were, excuse me, in their non-Christian society. He said, they didn't expect the government to protect them. They simply had an eternal hope and witnessed to this hope in their society. This is why I say that we have no reason to be afraid, but do have all the reasons to proclaim the gospel. So this is the realization that they begin to have that, hey, as things change and as the government moves forward, and now there's problems in the society, Christians become a fly in the ointment. And this is a thing that has happened forever, right? This is why you begin to see religious persecution of Christians in Rome. For a long time, Rome was just fine with Christians being there. No problem. You do your weird thing. Lots of people in Rome do their weird thing. Man, we've got gods everywhere. Sure, whatever. You be weird. They're Jews. That's what they thought. It's "Ah, it's some weird Jewish thing, right? And there was plenty of weird Jewish things, so sure, it's just another one of those weird Jewish things. But then as there began to be problems in Roman society and discord and fighting between the Jews and between the Christians, now Christians begin to be seen as, I don't know, this is their, their troublemakers, they're causing issues. What's their deal? We've got to figure them out. And you can read historically how Roman governors and Roman officials started writing letters between each other saying, what is the, what is, what is the deal with these guys? Oh, are they Christians or something? Like, can you figure this out? I don't know what's going on. Well, I, I, did, I talked to somebody, but I couldn't make any heads or tails of him. And I knew he wouldn't swear an oath to Caesar, so I just killed him, I guess. I don't know what to do. And there's this tone of kind of like, they're, they're not angry. They're not going after the Christians yet. They're just kind of like, I don't get it, man. Like, just get over it. That kind of persecution was a big thing that happened in Rome. Yes, you had, you had Nero, right? The thing we think of when we think of persecution, just an insane person who just desires to kill Christians. That goes on. But a lot of the Roman persecution was, and this is what they would do. They would bring, you guys would know this, they would bring you to a place, and you can read this in Eusebius, who's one of the first church historians. They would bring you to a place and they would say, listen, you can do your Christian thing. That's fine. We don't, we don't really care. But we just, we're going to put this little bowl here with a flame in it, and I want you to take a little pinch of this incense, and you throw it on the flame, and you say, Caesar is Lord. Cool. And you go home, and we do not care what you do. But you have to do that, because we're Romans, and this is what Romans do. And you're a Roman, right? You want to be, we just, this keeps us all unified and all together, and you need to do this like all of us, okay? So please, would you just put the incense here and just say, Caesar is Lord. Can you do that? And then you can go home. And it, you can read the tone historically. It's almost like they're begging them. They're like, can you please just not make a big deal? This is not a, we don't care about this and you shouldn't either. Just do the thing. And Christian said, well, you may not care about it, but it's a big deal to me. You read Polycarp and these people, Polycarp, I think, especially if I remember the, the name correctly, was like, well, I've served Jesus for all these years. Am I just going to turn on him now? Like, Jesus has been good to me. I can't just, you know, it's not, a, it's, it's not a big deal for you, but it is a big deal for me. 
And there were many, many, many Christians who chose death rather than saying, ah, sure, you know. And there were also many Christians who at that moment felt, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, come on, right? Like, I get to go home, I'll go to church, it'll be fine. Oh, I'm really a Christian. I'm doing all the Christian things. I'm just going to, come on, let's get this out of the way. And then after the persecution would come through and it would abate, these people would realize what they had done and they would repent in tears. They would come back to the church and say, I, I had my chance and I denied Christ. And this issue, what to do with Christians who came back after kind of renouncing Jesus in that way publicly, was such a big issue that it almost split parts of the church. Because there were some people who said, well, they've, they've renounced Jesus, we can't let them in. And there were other people who said, no, no, we can let them in, but they just like can't take communion and stuff. And there were other people who said, no, like, you need to give them grace. Like, you have to do that. And just to, for the record, I agree with the people who said you should give them grace, of course. Like, the Lord's grace extends to all of us. I want to point out, though, that that was how serious the early church took this. That some people were sitting there wondering, and, and you can read them writing letters saying, can we let these people back in? They burned the pinch of incense to Caesar. Now, in our hearts as Americans, we say, it's not a big deal, right? But it was a big deal to them because they realized that they could only serve one master. They weren't allowed, even in this petty, silly thing, they weren't allowed to do that because they served Jesus. That was their king, and they weren't allowed to just, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm also a Roman, and I'll do whatever you want to just get along. I think this is the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more of in places. And I, I do want to, I not want to be super heavy or a big warning, but we need to be aware as Christians that we don't have a lot of friends in the world. I think sometimes we think, well, there's this team, and they're scary, and we don't like them, but this team is our friend. Increasingly, we're seeing, and I think we, we're seeing in France especially, in an effort to be politically conservative and traditionalist and very French, this is where persecution is now coming from, is people saying, hey, we're French, we do French things, like we say that we serve the Republic, and we say that we, you know, that's the thing we put, French culture and French values, that's what we put over everything. So sign this paper that says, we're a church and we serve the French Republic. And to us, we may not think that's a big deal, but I think... No, no French Christians are going to get killed for that. But thankfully, there's a lot of French Christians saying, it doesn't matter what you do to me. I'm not going to sign that piece of paper because that's not what this church operates under. I don't operate under Republican values. I operate under Jesus values. And I'll love all of you and I'll serve you and I'll be the best French person I can, but I have to operate under my king. Primarily, that's how I have to be. I think we need to be aware of this because it's going to be increasingly the kind of thing that we might see, I think. I don't really believe. This is just me, right? I grew up, the generation I grew up, we were, you know, the, you know, read the Left Behind books and it was all like, guess what? Someday they're all going to come for you, right? And I think that could happen, of course. I mean, I pray that it doesn't happen in my life, but it could happen. But I know for sure I think what's going to start to happen is this other thing. The low-level, please compromise with us to get along and don't make trouble thing, I believe, will start to happen. And these are things that, of course, we should expect because we saw them in history, but more importantly because Jesus told us about them. Persecution shouldn't surprise us even though it's tempting, right? We hear these things and I get angry. That's my sin personally. Like, is I tend to immediate anger. Some people tend to get afraid or worried. Like, well, what, what's going to happen that these things are going on? But we don't need to be like that. Jesus pointed all these things out to us. In John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. 
because they do not know him who sent me. You know, when Jesus came, right, he did not stay neutral. And it wasn't necessarily always Jesus' fault, right? Jesus said some things that were very hard, but he said them to everybody. Everybody, when they encountered Jesus, they had to change. Jesus wasn't going to change, right? But Jesus wasn't the one always picking fights. A lot of times Jesus was just there. He was teaching. He was preaching the kingdom of his father. He was doing what his father told him. And people would come to him and say, okay, Jesus, that's fine. But what do you, how, so I'm a Pharisee. He's a Sadducee. What do you think about this? And Jesus would not pick a side. And that would make people angry. And they would say, hey, what about this taxation thing? Trying to catch him, right? And Jesus would say, well, here's what I think. And people would get angry. Why? Well, because they wanted a certain thing very badly out of Jesus. They wanted him to be the Messiah they wanted. And Jesus wouldn't do that. And so they persecuted Jesus and they killed him, right? That, that's, that is what happened is they began to realize he's not going to line up with us. We can't control him. And that's one of the reasons why the Pharisees, of course, satanic influence and because it was literally the, the thing on which all redemption history was going to turn that's why jesus died right but directly to those people that's what they thought they were doing they were trying to control this guy because he was dangerous and they couldn't get him to choose a side and jesus said we shouldn't be expect to be treated any differently all we have to do is live a godly life guys and that's going to make people upset not, we don't have to be angry or judgmental or rude or going out there and yelling at everybody. All we have to do is live for Jesus and, in a humble and quiet and loving way, and people will be upset. I guarantee it. And you guys know this, right? Because you, some of you have unsaved family or you've got unsaved coworkers. And, you know, there are times when you're in your flesh and you're like, oh, man, I deserve that one. I picked that fight, right? There are other times where you're like, oh, I was just being myself. I was having a great day today. I got up. I read the Bible. I was filled with the Spirit. I was happy. And I'm going to work. And all of a sudden, somebody's like, what's your problem? And they're upset at me. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I just love Jesus. And well, I don't want to hear about that. And they get angry at you, right? Or you're just doing your thing. You're minding your own business. And all of a sudden, somebody's like, well, we're doing this. Are you doing it? Well, no, I'm not doing that. Well, why? Why? You think you're better than me? No, I just, I just answer the question, man, right? And, and this, is, this is what happens, right? It's, it's not because, and it's important for us to realize this, when we get attacked in this way, it's not our fault necessarily, right? Sometimes we, we're, we are nice people and we want to search our heart and say, what did I do, Lord? You might always not have done something. If the Lord shows you something and the Holy Spirit says, hey, they're not attacking you because of me, they're attacking you because of you, right? Then that's okay. You can repent for that. But if you're just walking out what Jesus wants you to do and you become resisted and oppressed and attacked, the Bible says you can rejoice because of that. It's okay. You don't always have to say, well, I did something wrong. Sometimes you did exactly what you were supposed to do. You looked like Jesus and the darkness wasn't a fan of that that day. And that's good. That's fine. Right? We can say, hey, guess what happened today? I went out into the darkness and the darkness got upset. It must mean that I look like Jesus right? because <laughs> they noticed who I was and they got upset. And that can be a thing that fills us with joy because we're like, hey, at the very least, I know that I'm getting sanctified. I know that I'm walking in the way that Jesus wanted me to walk. Jesus said, hey, if I'm his servant, I'm going to see this. Look, it happened. Right? Yes, I must be a servant of Jesus. So it, it shouldn't be a thing that shocks us. This happened immediately in the book of Acts. The church began to get persecuted, right? There was a little bit of a lull. Everything was okay. And they were just, they were serving Jesus and they were excited. But as soon as it started to become a problem for people, there was an issue. In Matthew 10, 16 through 20, and then verse 28 as well, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. 
and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So yes, today we learned that in context, being wise as serpents and gentle as doves is talking about facing persecution. It's not talking about being a real shrewd businessman. <laughs> right? That's always how that would get quoted to me. It's like, oh, you know, wise as a serpent, so that's why I cheated on my taxes. No, that's not what, it's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about, hey, when you go out there, heads up, just be aware. You're out, you, you've just stepped out onto a battlefield. It's not just the normal world. This is everywhere you go, if you're serving Jesus, the enemy is looking for an opportunity. And you need to be aware of that. Why? So we should be afraid and like, oh no, what's it, where is it going to get me now? Jesus says, no, be afraid of me. That's what he said, right? Which is kind of, we're not used to that. But hey, Jesus said, no, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of me. You should fear me. And if you fear me and you love me and you respect me in all the ways that we should have Jesus, right? Then you're not going to be afraid of them. Well, I'm, I'm, we're going to, if you don't sign this piece of paper, then you're not very French. Bummer, dude, <laughs> right? Well, if you, don't, if you don't do this thing, then we're going to do this to your family. I mean, serious things, right? That's a silly thing. Serious things can happen to us. Well, we're going to do this and that. Okay, but guess what? Jesus could do all those things, and I deserve them, but he chose not to. So I love him, and I don't really, not scared of you, right? That's the, that's the attitude that Jesus said we should have towards these things. And not to worry ahead of time, because that's what I used to do. When I was younger, you know, hear a sermon like this and that you go home when you're a 12 year old guy so what do you do you start thinking about well, what well when they come for me what am I going to do what am I going to say right like am I going to make am I going to do it and Jesus said don't worry about it ahead of time why because I'm going to be speaking through you I'm going to be giving you the grace that you need right none of us are going to be able to deal with these things in the right way at the right time in our own flesh because we'll I mean if it's me I'll say awful things and then I won't be a very good witness all right no but if it's Jesus working through me I'm going to have the grace in that moment to be who Jesus wants me to be, to represent. That's what a martyr means, to be a witness of Jesus in that moment. And that's whether it's a serious thing that's going to cost me my life or just something small, like, hey, how am I going to behave, you know, <laughs> in this grocery store right now, in this work environment right now? Am I going to witness Jesus correctly? Jesus didn't want us to be ambushed by this, so he said, hey, heads up, this is going to happen, but I promise I'm going to be with you and I'm going to help you. We have to remember that persecution is spiritual. You don't have to fear the people that are doing this stuff, right? Or, or, well, what we need to do is if we fight them this way, then we'll stop the persecution, which I understand, right? I, I feel those feelings too. But here's the thing, we won't because it's the enemy. You can get rid of one set of tools that the enemy is using. He will find another set of tools. This is historically like the thing, right? Is all of a sudden God, you know, puts a stop to one thing and the enemy says, okay, I'm going to go over here, right? And the Lord allows that. The Lord has told us, hey, this is always going to happen. Just, you know, this is going to, the persecution is going to continue. He said it's going to continue on and on worse and worse as we reach the end times. Our role is to look to the Holy Spirit and seek his strength, not to try and act against the men who are being manipulated by the enemy, right? We kind of, in a way, we pity them and pray for them because it's not, these people are not thinking up these things, guys. I hate to tell you, but they're not smart enough to sit there and say, now what are we going to do to get the Christians? They're thinking they're doing a great thing. Rome, Romans thought they were just being super great Romans. Let's get rid of this problem. It's causing issues. And the enemy was having a field day as, as that went on. I want us to, you know, see, look at what's happening in these countries where other believers are suffering. It doesn't really matter what, what is happening in the country culturally, societally, there is some portion of the country that says, and you know the problem is those Christians, 
right? The country can be a democratic country or a dictatorship. It can be a communist nation. We've, we've been persecuted under fascism. Well, it doesn't really matter what's going on. Somebody is going to get the bright idea from the enemy. And you know what? <laughs> Christians, right? And also, by the way, and you know what? Jews will be a thing that also happens because anti-Semitism is a deeply spiritual thing where the enemy is like, you know what? I'm going to take out his, his people that he's chosen, and I'm also going to take out all of his children. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. And it doesn't matter what happens. Those two things will come up. We don't have friends in this world. There are people who are radically secular, progressive humanists who see us as the thing that's keeping them, keeping people from human flourishing. We could have all of the things we want to see if we could only get rid of the church. And we see that in our country. We see that in other countries. This is, this is right, when we see in Mexico and in France when you're getting these attacks against the church. Some of it's not even because it's the Christian church. It's, well, they won't let us have abortion. They won't let us have homosexual marriage. They won't allow us to open up the definition of, of gender to how we want it to be. So they're the problem, right? So we get, we get attacked from there. You know what? We also get attacked because people who tend to be culturally conservative and patriotic are going to start to see us as rebels because we're not we are not primarily serving the thing they're primarily serving. And this is happening and will continue to happen for us. We, we don't have friends in the world, right? We have Jesus. We have each other. And that's what you see with the first church, right? That's why they met house to house is they didn't have lots of other friends. They were going out there, finding people and introducing them to Jesus. But no, Romans weren't thinking, oh, the church, it's so cool. They were thinking, ah, they're either weird or they're a problem. It's typically how we've been regarded. Not all persecution is fanatical. Sometimes it's half-hearted and kind of amused, like Roman persecution a lot of times was. They just don't understand why we can't just, come on, just do it. Just get back to your life. Just look, we're giving you a good deal. This is going to be super easy for you. You do this, and we'll leave you alone, and you can be comfortable and happy and make money and do all the things you want to do. Just please do this thing for us. And like we said, some people did take that, that way out in every society. And this is, you know, you see this all the time throughout history. There's always a way, right? Some dictator rises up and he says, now listen, I want all of this and I'm going to do all these things and all you got to do is give me your, you know, just say that you're going to be cool with this and I'll make it great for you. And we see this. You would see this happen in Soviet Russia. The people who, could, who went along, got along, kept their head down, they had a pretty good deal. They could keep being themselves. Sometimes they even still got to be the church. Yeah, if you just, you just do this thing and say that you're super Soviet, it'll be cool, like you'll go along, right? In Hitler's Germany, there was a direct church split between two types of churches. There was the church, and there was the confessing church. And the confessing church was where you see men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and people like that who stood up and said, hang on a second, uh, it's not a church anymore if, you have to, if we have to come in and sign a declaration of national socialist principles, and we have to put that flag up on the altar, and we just have to let you come in and say whatever you want to say from the pulpit, it's not a church anymore, we're not a fan. You can, you can be the, the elected, remember Hitler, the elected ruler. You can be that here if you want but you don't get to be king in this building, right? And, and that was the thing. You, you, they had to actually say, no, you can do that, but Caesar is not our king. Right? We, we have a king already. We have Jesus, and we're just going to continue serving him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was murdered, martyred for that. This is the thing that I think we'll begin to see a lot of times is that Christians don't, we are very good citizens because we love Jesus, but we're sometimes, if we're serving Jesus correctly, we're pretty bad at just going along. And I think a lot of times we'll begin to see, and watch for this in your own life, see if there's opportunities where the enemy tries to get you. Hey, you know, if you just ignored this thing, if you kind of were okay with this, if you compromise with that, things would get a lot better for you. Hey, you know, you'd, you'd get ahead, you'd make a lot more money, these people would like you. If you just kind of stopped talking about that, 
If you would just stop being like that, if you would just stop saying that truth, everything would be easy for you. And I do believe that that also is persecution. No, it's not the same thing as what our Nigerian brothers and sisters face, and we need to be deep in prayer for them as for what they're dealing with. But it is also a persecution when you begin to see that there's everything begins to be set up asking you, would you please just compromise <laughs> and please just go along? And I do want to encourage us, it's okay to not do those things. In fact, we can't make those compromises because what is going to happen, I believe, is that it'll be very easy pretty soon for us to be very happy, wealthy, well-respected Christians. If we will just go ahead and do these couple things, everybody will like us We'll get it. Nobody will stop us from all the things that we want, and we'll be able to just continue existing this normal life we had before. Or we can take the door of following Jesus, and I don't think we'll have those things quite as much anymore, which will be okay, right? We'll have each other. We'll have Jesus. But I think there will begin to be choices like that, not necessarily in that we're going to kick your door down and we're going to have to stop church because there's people out front of, I don't maybe not yet. But in subtle ways, the enemy still would like to do what he's going to do. So how should we respond to these things? Well, like we said, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be angry. But we just know that it's going to happen and we get back to work. Right? We've got lots to do. <laughs> and for right now, still, praise the Lord, this, the, we don't see these things going on yet for where we live. Right? Let's just think about We've looked at these broad things and sometimes it can be discouraging. Let's think about, hey, when we go home, I can talk to everybody about Jesus that I want to in, in, from the parking lot out. Nobody's going to stop me. In fact, people won't even look at me real weird here. They'll just say, right, of course. Right? That's just how it is where we live. So we get this huge opportunity now. We still, we're not going to pass unnoticed. The enemy's still going to resist us. It's just going to come in different ways and different forms. But we have an opportunity now to begin practicing all of the things that we will need if something like that was to happen, right? Again, not a prophet. I have no idea what the Lord is going to choose to do or what mercy is going to continue to choose to give us. But I think at some point, all of us are going to face some level of persecution where even if it's this minor thing, hey, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Well, when you're when you've when do you train and when do you practice right game time is a bad time <laughs> to do those things you do it ahead of time you get this we get this space right now where we are comfortable we have the time in our lives right some most of us are pretty time rich we're pretty wealth rich as well compared to most folks right we have all these benefits and blessings and we can put them all to, to work saying hey am i structuring my life and the way I live and the things that I do so that when this stuff happens, I'll be ready for it. I'll say, you know what? I prayed about that for quite a while and I'm ready to handle that now. The Lord has filled me with his Holy Spirit. I know what we're going to do. We've made that decision. You saw that with um, Joseph, right? In the moment, in the crisis, something happens. And I'm pretty sure that Joseph had to have think of that ahead of, ahead of time. If you get into the moment and you're like, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I've thought out. And again, Jesus said, don't script out a whole thing. Like the Holy Spirit's going to work through you. But you're preparing yourself through spiritual disciplines, through making the hard decisions when you can, so that when the Lord says, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity to witness who you are and who I am before men, and you say, okay, I knew this was going to happen. I'm ready, right? This happens through abiding in Jesus, through all the, you know, all the things that we talk about every week, right? Through walking in his word and, and being in fellowship, honestly, because sometimes you just need to be encouraged. You're, you're alone and this stuff happens. The enemy loves that, right? Oh, look, <laughs> that one just left the herd. That, that's very easy for the enemy. But when you're together, right, you get discouraged. You say, you know what? I'm just going to like, this is what the guys at work are doing. I'm not going to say anything about it anymore. I'm tired. And you have a friend who says, no, you can't do that. Like, come on. Like, no, you, you need to say that. And don't be rude, but here's how you do it. And we, we encourage each other. That's very, very important. But now for sure is not a time to relax or to be comfortable, um, even though it's very easy for us to do that. 
we can't become addicted to that kind of comfort, right? Because at some point, if that comfort gets removed, we don't want to say, oh, the Lord is punishing us or we've done something wrong. We might, we want to say, hey, you know what? The Lord told us this was going to happen. We're ready for that. And we can encourage each other and say, hey, this is coming. We knew that. Now we're going to serve Jesus, even though it's not going to be comfortable as much anymore. We're okay with that. We love Jesus anyway. We need to remember to be fighting in the right war, right? The spiritual battle that the Lord's asking us to be in. We have no idea what circumstances the Lord's going to lead us through. I don't know, right? But we know that the Lord's going to be the same no matter what, right? Like we sang today, all those songs encouraging us, hey, the Lord's going to be there. It doesn't matter what's going to be going on. And let's ask him to fill us with such a vision of him that nothing the world is going to be able to do, nothing the enemy is going to be able to do, would distract us or tempt us to take our eyes off of him, right? For all the things we sang, we remember all the things that he's done for us, right? He's, he's worth that for sure, of us going through whatever it takes. Whether it's a huge thing or a super small thing, he's going to be worth us being willing to be faithful to him.